0: Ryan Stan here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Rachel Garvin, uh, speaker at ASEP 18, and uh, definitely one of the topics that uh, we were interested in. We om- likely almost have to talk about the other two topics as well, because the registration limit was reached on those. They're all all full up. Um, so we want to chit-chat in- very interesting topics and something that we have a lot of discussion on. emergency medicine we don't always deal with ideal situations we don't have controlled environments for most cases and one of your big talks you've had here was protecting the airway the perils of intubating and sedating a critically ill patient and that's a huge thing i mean sometimes people who are really dog sick they need to have stuff done and so you know how do we safely achieve what we're trying to achieve in this way uh, protecting the airway or even doing a, uh, a sedation or procedural sedation or uh, even just um, the medication to assist in management of the patient. And how can we do that safely, decrease risk to the patient and um, drop that uh, risk of badness at the hands of our medications and treatment? So uh, first tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, let's roll into some of the challenges we see with the critically ill patient that we're trying to to date and or intubate?
1: Sure, so um, I currently work at um, UT Health in San Antonio. Um, I'm um, obviously emergency medicine, but also trained in neurocritical care. Did my training at uh, University of Cincinnati. Um, oh, so that's fun, that's cool. That's, that's only an hour from me. Oh, well, yeah, it's a, it was a great- my favorite places. It was a great, great place to train. Um, so I kind of split my time um, doing work in the neuro ICU, but also still working in the emergency department.
0: That's cool. So this is your wheelhouse. So you've taken you've taken emergency medicine and then even cranked and further amped up the critical care aspect of it because you just didn't have enough uh, time inside the resuscitation phase and the ICUs of the worlds that we work in. What are some of the big challenges that we're going to face when it comes to managing airway and sedating and a group of patients that come in that are... that. You know, not not the ones that we typically assume in emergency medicine, the walkie-talkies, but somebody who's actively trying to head into the tunnel.
1: Right. So, I mean, these patients are definitely very challenging, but I think the most important point is, for the most part, we usually have a little bit of time in order to make a plan. Um, you know, it's we do have those crashing patients that come in that are in extremis that we have to do something about right then and there, but... For the most part, even with these critically ill patients, when they roll through the door, we have at least a few minutes to get some things together. And really the best way to have the process go smoothly, first pass success, making sure your patient is as stable as possible, is to have a plan. And you can develop, start developing that plan as soon as that patient rolls in the door and you see their vital signs and what they look at clinically. And then you start putting that plan together in your head and then sharing that with the rest of your team.
0: So with this, you know I think the big things we see is with innovations and most innovations with good, uh, good management, uh, a good nitrogen washout, good preparations and time. You know you have plenty of time, no hurry on your intubation. Several minutes, if not, you know ten minutes or so before somebody, somebody starts going down the drain. But what we're talking about in this case is those patients where we don't have that time, we don't have that functional reserve, we don't have the person who has a blood pressure that's going to be able to manage significant sedation very well. How do we approach the critical care? Um, We'll start off with the critical care airway. How do we approach that and prevent some of the common things that tend to happen where patients tend to have the potential to crash after we intubate them?
1: Sure. So, you know, for the first part of it, when the patient rolls in and you think that they're likely going to be someone who needs intubation, start pre-oxygenating them right away. Like they roll in, EMS puts them on the bed, you look at them, you hear the story, you say, this patient probably is gonna need an airway very soon, so I'm gonna put them on an Oxymask of 15 liters, a non-rebreather, maybe BiPAP if they need that, if they're a larger larger body habitus, or signs of maybe some um, um, OSA, that they may need some, a little bit of assistance. So I start that process right away. And even if I don't need to intubate them, it's not a big deal to take them off that level of supplemental oxygen, but I start that process right away. The other thing is figuring out the reason why they need intubation. So is it because they have an pneumonia? Is it because they have a hemorrhagic stroke? Is it because they're intoxicated in some way? So figuring out the reason why they need to be intubated and then planning your drugs for intubation accordingly. So this is one of the biggest aspects of not having your, I always use propofol and, a MAC-3 for my intubations, You know, this patient's coming in with an intraparenchymal hemorrhage from hypertension. I want to make sure to use an agent that actually may be more hemodynamically neutral because I don't want to tank their pressures when I intubate them. If they're a septic patient, thinking about something like ketamine or etomidate for that intubation as opposed to something like propofol. So it's really the, the picture of identifying the pathophysiology of your patient and matching up the drugs that you need for that patient specifically.
0: And with that, I think that's the big thing: is you can't cookie cutter the critical care patient. You know, looking at those specifics, the difference in why are they critical critically ill? You know, trauma versus medical, versus comorbidities, versus age considerations are also um, very important. What are some of the more common mistakes? I mean, we've already talked about the cookie cutter approach to medications, but what are some of the mistakes that physicians make, especially those? that are frontline-based emergency medicine docs, especially community or rural, that don't do a ton of critical care, but now they're faced with that patient who's come in that's blown out of subarachnoid hemorrhage or somebody who's been in a major traumatic event, or even sepsis for that matter. What are the big mistakes that you tend to see or, or want to anticipate with the management of these patients?
1: Um, So a a couple of things to remember with these patients. Number one is, again, I kind of go back to that plan, and I think that's really, really important with these patients. And, you know, even in areas where you may have limited resources, having a few things at at the bedside and when you anticipate this airway may be more difficult um, with how sick the patient is so that you can get your first pass success success rate to be much higher. So, you know, having your plan of, I'm going to start with a Mac 3, maybe have a GlideScope as backup. I'm going to have a Bougie. I'm going to have an LMA, all the things already ready at the bedside. um, So you're not scrambling to get these things together once you're actually doing your airway. The other thing is, After the patient is intubated, this is kind of the big point with critically ill patients. Once that tube is in, your job is not done. Mm -hmm. So remembering that these patients need some kind of sedation usually to help make sure that they're comfortable Um, and also making sure to monitor their vital signs. And this is really important with patients that are critically ill. And in my perspective, being a neurointensivist, this is a huge issue when patients need blood pressure control and oftentimes these patients get put on a big load of propofol, they tank their pressures, and that can affect them from multi-system organ dysfunction standpoint um, from perfusion. So thinking about once that tube is in, where do I want my vital signs to be? How much sedation do I need for my patient? And what do I want to use for that to make sure they can stay in the range that I feel is appropriate? You
0: when know, there's significant alterations, um, physiological alterations after intubation, I and mean, even any type of positive pressure, uh, but with intubations with the changes in um, preload, afterload, cardiac efficiency, things like that. There's a lot of things to think about. So what are the expectations? So I know you do the neurocritical care, and I guess it's, it's important because we don't want, that, especially in somebody who's got a, a bleed, we don't want to drop that pressure and, and drop down and cause ischemic, uh, further ischemic insult because of the loss of oxygenation of the brain. Um, What are some of those things we need to predict? What are some of the physiologic changes that we need to anticipate, you know, after we have that patient intubated and sitting there on the vent?
1: I think that there there are two two things that we can actually look for is that you know sometimes patients especially ones that are that are critically ill that they're actually driving their pressures up in that sympathetic response to main, to maintain their reserves and then once we intubate them and we take all of that away that's when we usually see them tank so being prepared with having a presser stick at the bedside um, having pressors already ready to go so once you get that tube in and the pressure is 70 over 30 you're not scrambling mm-hmm to try to get that pressure up, you have everything already ready. On the flip side of that, we can see patients remain very hypertensive after they're intubated. Sometimes that's because they are still paralyzed but not sedated, and we have to remember that when we use... Longer-acting agents like rocuronium as opposed to succinylcholine, you know, our etomidate, ketamine, propofol, all those agents when we push them for an intubation are gone within 10 minutes for the most part. Um, And when we use these longer-acting agents, our patients are still paralyzed without sedation. So if we see our patients running tachycardic, hypertensive, that's one thing to consider is making sure they have some sedation. And on that same topic, if you had to just pick one agent to use for sedation and analgesia, fentanyl is a great one to use. Um, A lot of times we see patients just sedated on propofol, and we have to remember that provides no analgesia at all. Um, And propofol is very big cardiovascular depressant medicine. So we get great sedative effects from that, but that's when we can see patients tank their pressures. So using fentanyl, um, starting off even at 0.5 mics per kilo per hour. Great way to allow your patient to have analgesia and does have some sedative effects um, to allow them to be comfortable.
0: And you don't get the hit on the pressures as near as much with that either. Um, You know, we used to use that all the time with our trauma-based patients. Um, You know, as before, we really had the Resurgence of ketamine uh, and others, but you know you, you get the trauma patient come in with hemorrhagic shock, and all of a sudden we're hitting them with propofol and etomidate, and then wondering why they've got a pressure of four over hmm. negative eight. Right. And um, and so that's that's a big consideration. Now, with regard to sedating, so well, let's say we're not necessarily intubating, uh, but sed- sedating a big thing in on the emergency medicine is you know I work in a facility where I've got. You know, my average patient seems to be about 85 years old, and we still have, you know, falls with wrist fractures and things like that. I need to sedate uh, patients. So somebody with significant comorbidities, not necessarily even critically ill, but we can even say critically ill with other types of injuries, but we have to do some sort of sedation or even just excited delirium-type patients where we're trying to sedate some just to uh, help keep them safe. What are some of those considerations in these patients that uh, whether through age, comorbidities, or other uh, medical conditions are making them a higher risk.
1: Yeah, so that's actually a great point because there are lots of different sedative agents to use, whether you're talking about conscious sedation, deep sedation, or like with ketamine, our dissociative sedation that we can get with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And taking into account patients' age and comorbidities is a huge factor in that. Ketamine is one of my most favorite drugs for sedation, but if I have an 85-year-old with underlying coronary artery disease. That's probably not gonna be my first choice to use for sedation, just because of the sympathomimetic effects of that drug. Um, but for the, a young patient um, who's otherwise without significant comorbidities, ketamine is a great drug. Now, one of the things I found actually, you have to be careful about with ketamine is if you push it too quickly, you can cause patients to be apneic. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it it uh, has that unanticipated effect when you think about procedural sedation and maintaining the airway. But if you, you know, pushing that drug slowly, you know, 0.5 milligrams per kilo to start with, that is a great drug for a lot of patients. It allows them to maintain maintain their airway and they don't care what's going on around them. Um, Presidex is another great drug actually to use if you have someone who maybe they're a little bit agitated you need to get a CT scan or something like that Um, in the right patient that's not hypotensive and bradycardic Presidex infusion is a great drug to use Um, it allows people to be awake protect their airway but allows them to be calm as well Um, it's not the most common drug used in the emergency department but it is a great drug for those types of situations um, like I said, the main limiting effect with presedex is be, is uh, its lowering of heart rate and blood pressure. Um, but we use that all the time um, to help facilitate things getting done without actually putting somebody out with sedation. You know, for older patients, I think still some of the old standbys of conscious sedation with a little bit of Versed um, and a little bit of fentanyl is a really great way to go. Um, You're just trying to get someone to the point of just being comfortable enough but still maintaining their airway. Um, And so that is a really still great standby um, for a lot of patients that have a lot of underlying comorbidities.
0: Let's make a a shift change here because if, if you weren't already registered, you're not making it into the next talk. Uh, that we're talking about uh, because it's booked in full, and of course, it's going to be released after uh, ASAP 18 anyway, so um, if you missed it, you know, one of the big things, and and you talk about neurocritical care, um, your specialty, and one of the, probably one of our least favorite diagnoses in emergency medicine is that of the posterior circulation strokes you know, that patient that comes in this time of year with the allergies, you know, the potential of vestibular peripheral etiologies of dizziness versus, you know, the risk and thought of missing a significant posterior stroke uh, or circulation-related issue. What are some of the things that it is? I mean, your, your title is a dizzying dis- differential, and it is one of our least favorite, and I've... Uh, I've had these slip through before. I uh, thankfully admitted them any, anyway, any secondary to the symptoms, but didn't necessarily completely uh, appreciate the uh, posterior stroke element. And uh, also those that I feel like I've probably done excessive workups because of my fear for posterior uh, type of stroke. So t- talk to us a little bit about that and, and help put all of us at ease about uh, this craziness.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you when I when I was um, given this topic to present on, I was like, man, this is not an easy one. Um, posterior circulation strokes are really, really tricky, and I think one of the big keys about them is history and physical are going to be the most important. You know, we rely a lot in the emergency department on our labs, on our imaging to help steer us in the right direction, um, but for posterior circulation strokes, number one, you have to have it on your differential. Mm-hmm. And number two, you have to really get a good history and a good physical exam. It can't just be the once-over of looking at the patient, you know, hold up your arms, hold up your legs sort of thing. You have to actually focus in on the posterior circulation and what things are different between posterior circulation presentations and anterior circulation. You know, it's so easy when we get a call from the field, patient coming in as a stroke alert, they're hemiplegic, they're aphasic, they have a gaze preference, that's you know, we all know we have to call a stroke alert for that, but one of the most common presenting symptoms for posterior circulation strokes is nausea and vomiting Mm -hmm. and dizziness, right? So how often do we see patients with nausea, vomiting, and dizziness? So key, like keying in on the three major areas where we'll find neurologic changes, cranial nerve exam is absolute, um, And cerebellar exam is absolute, and getting up and walking the patient is absolutely necessary. So with some patients, like if you have a pica infarct, unless you actually sit the patient up, you won't know if they have truncal ataxia and all of our patients are laying on the stretcher in the emergency department, and just that simple act of can you sit up in bed, Um, that may really elicit the fact that they can't hold themselves steady and really key you in with the fact that they presented dizzy and nauseous with that finding of truncal ataxia. So these are the types of presentations you have to go through, cranial nerve testing, cerebellum and gait, and put all of those things together with a high suspicion of an acute vestibular syndrome, like a posterior circulation stroke, to kind of put things in motion.
0: Fantastic. What's still one of those things I think is going to give us all a bunch of angst because you're right. You don't. You're not going to come in with that. You no, know, clearly unilateral type deficits. We're talking about more uh, obtuse and nebulous type deficits that mimic a lot of the common things that we see. Completely benign things, especially when they start presenting during times when we're seeing a bunch of that other type stuff because of. Uh, what's going around with viral-type syndromes, with allergies, and everything like that. So you mentioned the cranial nerve examinations, the ambulation uh, of the patient, getting those kind of fine differentiators uh, that we're we're looking for, and it sounds like those are kind of the keys. What are the, for me to be able to safely take this off, overall safely take this off the differential list um, after I've evaluated the patient, what is that stuff that I need to have documented? You've already mentioned a bunch of it, but what do I need to have documented in my chart? Um, findings that are going to be able, for me to say safely, and and w- when lawyers may look at it down the road, that that we were on good stead, and this person was safe to be dispositioned home.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think like we talked about that neurologic exam, and there, there's a lot of talk about the Hints exam. Um, And there's a lot of discussion about that in in, uh, emergency medicine, about using the HINTS exam to rule in a posterior circulation stroke. Um, And it's a great test to use, um, looking at um, head impulse testing, um, nystagmus, and tests of skew. And the, the literature that was published on this shows that if you do the exam well, and you have certain features of this exam that point you in the direction of a, a posterior circulation stroke, it's 96% sensitive, 100% specific. And so a lot of people bank on using this test saying, yes, I can you know, rule in a stroke this way or rule out and say it's a peripheral cause. But we have to remember that when this study was done, it was done by neuro-ophthalmologists mm-hmm. at one center. And so it really hasn't been generalizable to the rest of the population, um, unless people are actually trained to do it from an emergency medicine standpoint, it's an ex- excellent addition to your arsenal. But I think if you had documented, you did the Hints exam. Hints exam does not point to a central cause, and you had the rest of your full neurologic exam. I think that would be that's better than any imaging Um, because we know that 20 to 25 percent of imaging, even uh, MRIs with diffusion-weighted imaging, can be negative early on within 48 hours of patients having strokes. So I think your clinical exam is going to be the most important thing in documenting I've ruled this out based on my exam.
0: Fantastic information. How can folks get more information for you if they have any questions, thoughts, want to kind of Dig deeper into these types of management for our, our critically uh, critically ill patients in our emergency department.
1: I'm um, sure. So um, I can give my email address. Sure, good it. Um, uh, it's Garvin R. Um, at oh, I have to spell it out. It's at utuska. So that's UT Health Science Center, San Antonio. Those first letters. Dot edu.
0: And do you have uh, social media?
1: I'm not really a big person on not social media. Really. I'm an old person, so not old person. I'm, not <laughs> I'm not big on social media, but I am big on with email. So that's that's the contact that I have.
0: Feel free to contact her. Uh, as for us, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, and uh, at everydaymed on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.